Welcome everybody and uh, I'm delighted to welcome back, uh, I'm always delighted, I'm <laughs> delighted to welcome back um, Peter, Peter Dorgson, who's the founder of Exemplify uh, Consulting. I spoke with Peter probably around a year ago actually, just when the pandemic was uh, kicking off this time last year, where we were looking at the broader um, customer experience, world of CX customer experience and kind of what was happening, where that was going. So I thought it'd be great to get um, Peter back on. He's kindly invited me to speak at a, at a conference coming up, which led me to have a broader conversation with Peter about what he's seen in the last 12 months. And um, the focus of today is going to be around kind of broad ranging conversation of predictive behavioral analysis. But Peter, for those of, the, those of my listeners that didn't listen to your, uh, our previous podcast, uh, why don't you introduce yourself and give a background about sort of who you are and um, what your experience is. Yeah, thank you very much, Alex. Um, and for those that don't know me, um, then my area of specialization is combining data analysis uh, with behavioral analysis. And why I do that is to essentially try and teach computers, um, why do people do what they do, what they're going to do next, and what an organization ought to do about that. And Alex, you were quite right. A year ago when we were talking, we were just entering into lockdown. Um, nobody was quite sure what that was going to end up being like. And I don't think any of us really predicted what was going to happen. Uh, but a lot has happened in a year mm -hmm. and a lot is still going to happen. And I'll just share with you one of my thoughts. Right now, I'm cautiously optimistic. Mm -hmm. I think that 2020 was a year of change. It was a catalyst for change. So it speeded up a lot of things that had taken a while to get on the agenda. Um, we went away and we sacrificed some of the sacred cows. We tested some of our assumptions. But I don't think we're in a new normal yet. I think we're still in transition to a new normal state. But the reason I'm optimistic is we're in a very different place from even three months ago. You know, we, we have now um, real indicators of increasing um, confidence in business, in government and consumers, and that's driving a behavioural change. So the reason you and I were talking about predictive behavioural analytics was because so many businesses right now are trying to understand what does the new COVID consumer look like and how should our relationships business to business look as we prepare to take advantage of some of the opportunities that are going to be presented in the next year. Um, so yeah, last year, tough year. I think all of us really had to work very hard to get through that. This year, I think it's going to be a lot better for those that can accelerate into the recovery um, and possibly even steal market share from some of their less well-prepared competitors. That's good to uh, good good to hear that we think that things are going to be positive, and I'm I'm also of the of the same. Notwithstanding, you know what's happening over on the continent at the moment regarding um, the Oxford vaccine and uh, and so on, but I'm sure that will sort itself out. These things uh, tend to. Just picking up on some of the points, then you said around um, we ha we tested some hypotheses last year that maybe we we wouldn't have done, and those um, I guess it's the old, but this is the way we've always done it. Syndrome has now been broken. Can you elaborate on that a little a, a little further in terms of what, what some examples of what you saw being done that maybe hadn't been done before because there was no I guess pressure to do it. Right. Yeah. So I mean, there are a couple of big drivers. Um, firstly. Um, a lot of businesses had to change their fundamental operating model. Mm -hmm. uh, easiest ones to see is what's happened on high street retail. 
you know, clearly, if you can't open a, a store for people to come in, you have to find another way. And for many organizations, that was a dash to digital and um, accelerating into the cloud. Mm -hmm. Now, that brought some real challenges. And in the past, when we used to talk about re-engineering, we'd say it was uh, people, process and technology. And unfortunately, last year, it tended to be the other way around. We went for technology first yes. so that we could just transact. And then we played whack-a-mole with the processes as we realized that a lot of the established ways of working don't work in this new environment. Um, and then we started to, within about three, four months, realize that we were putting real pressure on our people. You know, the way that they were working was different. The stresses they were under were different. I mean, goodness knows, everybody seems to be on video conferencing yep. practically 24 hours a day. But also what we saw was just how interconnected all parts of the value chain were. So we saw channel disruption. We saw disruption in supply chain, both at a local and an international level. Our workforce may have had to relocate, may have had to work differently. Um, and those relationships became really important as we realized perhaps a, you know, a critical supplier is different from a strategic one. Just because we spend a lot of money with a supplier doesn't mean that they're the ones we really need. Mm -hmm. But we also saw, um, as a population, a lot of complexity. People trying to figure out what's going on. There's a lot of moving pieces. There was a lot of uncertainty. So nobody has a crystal ball to try and you know, really accurately predict what's going to go on. Um, and we had a lot of disruption constantly going up and down into, into lockdown. And people started to use other channels like social mm -hmm. as a way of re-engaging with consumers, re-engaging with businesses, re-engaging with suppliers, because it was all part of one thing. At the end of the day, if we disappoint a consumer, they blame your brand. They don't care that you had a problem in the supply chain or that yeah. you had a problem with logistics. It was your fault. And a lot of that was impacting the way our reputation was um, being affected. But perhaps one of the big changes was the way that businesses started to look at their channel partners and started to look at suppliers and realized we need to treat them like customers. Mm -hmm. Because I saw in a few examples where it became a seller's market with suppliers. So when there was a global shortage of well, PPE is the one that immediately comes to mind, suppliers could pick and choose who they would work with. So they were deciding, who am I going to take orders from? Who am I going to satisfy? And lo and behold, they chose the organizations that they got the most value out of the relationship with. Mm -hmm. Because all organizations fundamentally are based upon people. People solve problems not businesses. So what I saw was a lot of influence going on in a social sphere as we're trying to understand how can I recreate my value chain with new suppliers or perhaps new routes to market? How do I establish reputation when we're all working from home or we're all behind a digital storefront? And how do I translate that into something which is a continuous delivery cycle all the way to the point where the customer receives their goods or services and beyond? because then they come back and we need to provide them with customer service. So a lot of moving parts, three big things particularly, I'll say was complexity, mm -hmm. uncertainty, and these two still remain. And I think now interconnectedness, it's all about establishing partnerships and the way that we leverage and utilize those partnerships. And one final thing, all the data that organizations were using up to the point of COVID, of course, comes under um, question in the COVID consumer, which are they are behaving in a slightly different way. So all the things, you know, just because I was a good customer two years ago, 
does not mean I'm going to be a good customer from here on in. We're in a different place now. So a lot of these organizations are having to use analytics to try and make sense of data that's coming from these digital channels and especially what's coming from the social channel, which um, when we get it right, gives us authentic insight into what's going on in the heads of our business partners and our customers and make some sense out of that because all executives are saying, stop giving me data. In fact, stop giving me insights. What I need are actionable options. So what are my choices and what are the pros and cons of each of those? How do they affect my bottom line? How do they affect my reputation and things like that? So a lot of uh, analysis going on and some of that is behavioral. And that's where as I say, I've been most interested in is what's going on inside the heads of um, customers, employees and suppliers. And I mean, you segued very nicely into where I was going to go because I was going to pick up on the point when we discussed um, this time 12 months ago that the, the data from the previous world is no longer relevant today. And we've now had 12 months of new data, I guess, as they're figuring out the, you know, the complexities that you that you refer to, which is getting different, different, different insight into the why and the how, which is why I'm assuming in terms of your predictive you know, behavioral analysis and what you've been looking at over the last 12 months, we are kind of where we are. And I know that, you know, I've discussed this, you know, <clears throat> offline as well is what I'm finding fascinating is that this is now starting to um, come into the beat of the world of business to business. Uh, Forrester Gartner kind of referring to the consumerization of the sales process in a business to business um, world. You know, I've had conversations with Sarah uh, Sets and very traditional brands where their sales teams traditionally are on the road and they go and meet people face to face and they're of a certain age and a certain uh, profile and now they can't do that and they need help in how do I sell how do I sell in this environment let alone using social let alone in you know using um using data so I've got the slides up here which you um shared with me before the call so thank you for that um Predictive analytics, some definitions, just for our um, our listeners, let's let's let you kind of break this down again. So behavior, what what for you is behavior when we're talking around th this uh, this topic? OK, so th th I think there are actually possibly three definitions. So I'll give you the general one. Ge yeah. Most people think of behavior is what people do. Um, yeah. And when we look at data scientists, they also do that and they call that observations. So what do we observe that people do? And they feed those into predictive models. So when we talk about things like AI, what it's doing is it's saying, well, what did we observe happen? And can I work out a cause and effect relationship with that? And it focuses on working backwards from the effect. But when we're dealing with predictive behavioral analysis, analysis I start with cause. Mm -hmm. Why do people do what they do? Mm -hmm. um, and it's what we do, we observe, but I'm interested in the why. So part of my research that I did in the last 12 months was look very deeply at motivations. You know, why do people do things? What is it that they value? So that's the first thing. When we talk about behavior, there's the general sense of how we understand behavior. You know, I look around, I see people doing it, and we tend to make value judgments about that. Mm -hmm. The data science point of view about behavior, which is what can we observe? You know, what data can we gather on that? And then there's my approach, which is to do some of that, but actually I'm much more interested in the fundamental motivations or the why, so the cause behind the effect. How, so that's the behavior. How do you go about doing that? I mean, that's, again, because the, the I guess moving into this kind of the, the, the not gray, but the world of, influence in terms of you and I could see exactly the same advertising campaign from, I don't know, Nike, for example, mm. but do two completely different things based on seeing the same thing. So how, 
How have you gone about actually understanding the the, the causation to your point and also the, the why people do or behave in the way that they do based on something? Yeah, so uh, very good point, by the way. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, so what I use is natural language processing. Okay. So what I'm trying to do is look at what do pay people say about things. So let, let's yeah. take um, that data science approach to building a model. We take the observation. So we take the end point, if you like, of you yeah. know somebody does something mm -hmm. and we feed that into a model and we look at the way that that relates to other factors that we understand to determine something we're interested in. OK, mm -hmm. so we take the observation. I actually use that as my end point. So what I do is say, OK, I want to predict that behavior. I want to predict what it is that somebody does. Mm -hmm. But I also want to relate that to um, you know, what have they said or what have other people said about that? So when you do that. Um, what you can do is, if I asked you a general question, like to describe something to me, mm -hmm. so, and then I link that to an outcome, I say, well, let's describe your last visit to your local bank or something. Yeah. What happens is when you use language, um, you will typically, firstly, talk about the thing that's most prominent in your mind. So you will remember what was the biggest thing about that visit that I remember, and then you will use um, subconsciously, emotional language to describe it. We can't help ourselves. We're social yeah. animals. We leak that in. And I detect that. But that wasn't enough. Mm -hmm. So if I wanted to be to do prediction, I had to look at all of the factors. So yes, there's absolutely a behavioral element of this. And it's a very strong indicator of, of how people will act, but it's not the only one. Mm -hmm. um, and let's use emotion as a proxy behavior how do i feel about something yeah well, i might say i love a particular brand of sports supercar you know i love everything about it i love the color it comes in i love the way the engine sounds mm -hmm. you know i'm obviously expressing very powerful emotional attachment to that realistically i'm never going to be able to afford to buy a new one well at least not rationally i mean if i sell my house cashing my pension maybe okay yep. um so in that case the economics are going to dominate the decision yeah but if i was a premier league footballer and i wanted to go out and buy a supercar i would and i wouldn't care about how much does it cost or you know difficulty in parking or you know does it make any sense to drive that down to cornwall or not yeah you know, so there the emotions can dominate the decision so that's part of that so firstly what i do is say i understand or use tools to understand from language what people care about and why they care about it and then I evaluate that with other data to work out how much does that contribute to their decision to mm -hmm. take a particular action. So as I say, yeah, the emotions are important and in many decisions, um, they make up the majority of the decision and it's the decision that drives the behavior because unless I decide to do something, yeah. I can't really measure that. Um, but it's not the only thing. And so this is why in a world where we saw so much data changing, when we saw established patterns you know, falling away, assumptions about the value of particular kinds of interactions being really tested to destruction. Because while, you know, we often worked on instinct as businesses or we worked on habit, people do too. You know, people often refer to their habits or their prior experience to inform their next decision. But last year we couldn't do that because we were in a completely different world and the established patterns and habits just don't stack up. Yes. So we had to go and find new ways of interacting, new ways about thinking about each other. And we also had to reflect that, as I said a little earlier, businesses are made up of people. Many of those people are in different psychological states than they were before. So we as businesses, uh, working with those people, have to anticipate that and say, how best can I help that person work with me? And it isn't just transactional anymore. It isn't just 
this is my price, take it or leave it. These are my terms and conditions. You could do that, but it doesn't serve your business um, any positive outcome if as a result of that, your supplier goes out of business and they can no longer supply you. So I saw that a lot. I saw a lot of people trying to stick to their established ways of working, their established mm -hmm. terms and conditions, and saw their suppliers either go out of business or refuse to supply them. And as I say, a value chain, uh, it's a bit of a cliche, but it's only as strong as the weakest link. And if you yep. start losing links along the way because you're not nurturing and caring for your supply yep. base, you can't then supply your customers. And that does damage to you. you know, we have all saw it where people were going into retailers early on in the lockdown and shelves were empty. Yeah. Now, they didn't care that the reason there was no flour on the shelf was A, because there's more demand, but B, because there wasn't enough retail packaging available. Yeah. All they saw was empty shelf yeah. and they blame the retailer for it. Yeah. And whilst we had a bit of a honeymoon period for a couple of months and people accepted, yeah, this is all changing. We're all in it together. We're way past that now. Yeah. I don't think anybody could use it's because of COVID or because of coronavirus as an excuse for delivering yeah. bad service to either their suppliers, their employees or their customers. Completely, completely agree. And I think that, you know, what I found fascinating is the small, the smaller the business, I'm thinking, you know, the, dare I say it, the, 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 um, the I'm going to use the word hipster, that's probably unfair, but the, the, the burger um, restaurants in London suddenly flipped to Instagram, we're using PayPal, WhatsApp messaging, and very quickly you could then have their DIY, DIY kits delivered in 24 hours to um, uh, to your door or a local brewery down the road from me um, in Isha. It was an incredible story the CEO shared how before COVID they were doing literally no online and now they managed to get online quickly and it, it saved their business and enabled them to you know, invest in more pubs because of it when they um, uh, when they, they open. So the predictive bit we've also uh, we've also kind of touched on. It's how do you then where do you find the, the data then to kind of listen to what people are as saying like you know i i use the i use actually the bank example as, as an example so my bank with natwest typically when i when i used to go into a natwest um physical um uh, branch it was always a god-awful painful experience because it was not enough tiller not not tellers it was slow i couldn't get done what i'd done the machines wouldn't work yeah actually the online banking app is really 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 good in terms of the the experience that it provides i then have amex platinum that cost me a not insignificant amount of money per year to have that card. Yet the online Amex experience is crap compared to the the NatWest um, uh, experience, which I don't deem deem to be premium like um, uh, like Amex. Now I don't go and talk about that on uh, uh, online, but where do you where do you get that data to get the the sense and the feel and the emotion of what people are are thinking or doing? Uh, and again, another good question. I mean. Um... As you're aware, right now, a lot of people are talking about AI and machine learning yeah. and all of that kind of good stuff and automation. Well, all of that is dependent upon being fed relevant data mm -hmm. and in quantity. Yeah. Um, the AI can only learn what we teach it based upon the data that it's exposed to. So for the emotion bit, we need sources of language. And there are some which are absolutely up there. Um, first of which, any customer interaction we have within our business or any interactions we have people to people, if we can capture that. So call centers, yep. for example, get loads of this kind of material, but often it stays siloed within the call center and it's used to operate or train their staff. Mm -hmm. but actually, That's great feedback. Customer service, great feedback. 
Um, if we then look at things like um, social media, the social channels, and I include within those the business channels as well that we have in place. Um, also great sources of data, but with one caveat that you have to be aware of going in, they tend to be polarized. So vocal people in social media yeah. either have a negative story to tell or a positive one. And we all know that um, one way to get a business's attention is to flame them on social media. You know, somebody will pick up the phone and say, oh, yeah, why are you saying that? Let's take that offline. So, But you can account for bias. Mm -hmm. So we can build that. And this is, again, an interesting wrinkle in the technology. You can do surveys. I mean, we do like things like star ratings and you know, recommendations. Of course we do, because, as, again, as human beings, we're a bit sloppy in our thinking. Um, yeah, uh, the hardest kind of thinking is what's called system two. That's when we concentrate about something. We think of all of the you know, factors that go into that. But only 2% of our decisions day to day are in system two. The rest of them are instinctive and emotional and are grounded in how we feel and what we've learned in the past. So, yeah, absolutely social. Bear in mind that that can have a bit of bias. There is an unspoken majority of the people who are just, I'm okay, but I don't feel particularly positive or I don't feel particularly negative. Therefore, I don't feel that I need to talk a lot. But then there are things like customer service. There are things like we can engage people in marketing and events. Mm -hmm. and, and we can even do primary research like market research, but it's language that we need. Um, and the more authentic the language, the better. So when you are dealing with this system one, system two thing, um, if we ask people, you know, how are you feeling? Or you know, which of these emotions are you feeling? It's very difficult to get an authentic answer because we're gonna do that in system two. I've been asked a question, I need to think about the answer and well, I'm gonna do that logically. But if you ask people to tell you little stories, like could you describe your last interaction or could you describe how um, that made you feel? Mm -hmm. We tend to be more authentic and we don't tend to game it as much. So you know, if I'm doing a satisfaction survey, it's very easy for me to say, you know, I'm, you know culturally, I never give a 10 yeah. or I never give a zero, you know, and I'm never, you know, I'm never going to really big you up. I, or in fact, I might even give you a very low score, particularly to prompt that kind of response. Yeah. But if I'm telling a story, much more difficult to do that, much more difficult to find a way of gaming it. You know? So, um, but any source of language, which is why things like social selling engagement and customer service which is becoming much more social as well yeah. a lot of people are using social channels as their first point of contact with an organization so they don't even bother trying to find a customer service number or you know where do i go on the website they immediately go on the social channel and hashtag whatever it might yeah. be to get them oh, but those are incredibly rich um, sources of data which we've not historically been very good at mining we do things like word clouds you know what's the most frequently used word yeah. you know, in terms of its frequency that doesn't mean to say that it's important just because somebody talks about that a lot i mean if, if you did that and you took the word the you know, that's clearly going to be one of the most popular or populous language in a word cloud now we tend to suppress those things yeah. but there are lots of topics that we use where you get frequencies which actually are not associated with importance but when people tell you little micro stories, yeah. you get both. You get what they care about and why they care about it. I think as I'm, as you're talking, I'm starting to kind of think of all the different things around where B2B can start to start to leverage uh, some of this. And Gartner and Forrester are talking about, Forrester certainly uh, are talking around the future of B2B sales is what they refer to as dynamic guided selling and sales and marketing now need to work, you know, absolutely in concert with each other. It's all around the, the, the data piece. But if I think around me as a, a customer 
of, of B2B. So let's take LinkedIn, for, for example. I actually get more response from LinkedIn on Twitter, at LinkedIn Help, than I do any other channel. They're really, they're really responsive there. So at LinkedIn Help, on Twitter, anybody can do it. This isn't, this isn't working. So already there's a social channel where there's data. Then they raise a ticket which then gets emailed to me or it gets sent within their own chat, that chat function. And then there's the conversation that goes around there. If, if one gives consideration of how many tickets are being raised on a daily basis for tech support on any, uh, uh, any product, there's probably a huge source of information there, which businesses certainly in the, in the, in the tech SaaS play could, could leverage. Phone calls is isn't obvious, and we all know you know this this call has been recorded for monitoring and training purposes. Now that's starting to become very much uh, prevalent in B two B with sales engagement technologies, outreach, uh, sales loft, Gong, Vin, Vintelligence are, are, are a few there. Um, Microsoft, you know they they're moving into this space as um uh, uh, as well. So I guess it's around the data is one aspect of it. So that's there. It's then does it does every organization need a Peter in their in their business to then actually help them understand what the hell to do with it? Referring to your earlier point, the leadership teams don't want data. They want they want actionable points. So the data is telling us this, this, and this. Therefore, my recommendation is this. Or these are the three options that we can we can do. Is that is that where this is going, do you believe? I think ultimately that there are going to be a number of expressions on how that might work. Um, so let me give you an example. Um, in the dash to digital, lots of businesses moved to the cloud um, yeah. because it was the quickest way to scale and they didn't have to provision lots of technology that had to then you know, fit a particular configuration. Um, and I've seen, you know, my son works from home from a call center and he's on his third iteration of laptop. Right. Yeah, because they're, they're catching up. Okay, so we don't want to do that anymore. We don't want to say we have one configuration. It's the only configuration that works. And when we're one of the challenges, clarify, when we're talking about the cloud, we're talking Azure, AWS. You know, yeah, or actually cloud providers. So we're anybody offering something as a service based in the cloud, so that yeah. you can scale in it. Okay. Yeah. The, the the reason I mentioned this is. A lot of people had to do that to do that first bit of technology and process, right? We need to move our business into something we can scale. That didn't mean we had to ship out lots of predefined technology. Yeah. Um, then they got into the process part of that. This is where we start to see the difference between those that do a really good job of it and those that don't. Those that do a really good job of it figured out very quickly, it's not the technology that sets you apart. It's not the potential capability that sets you apart. It's how you use it. And that is about the service that we deliver using those tools. So what that means is you can automate a lot of that, but in order to do it, you need somebody who can think about, this is the data and the insights that I get about it. And that's interesting, but it doesn't become valuable until I figure out how can I operationalize that? And what are the pros and cons? Now, many businesses could do this if they took the time to think about it. Um, and at a small scale, we can, if we looked at this and said, you know, I can appoint somebody who understands a little bit about behavior, who has access to the data and they can take a strategic overview. Mm -hmm. And this is actually the first step in running these kinds of programs out. You get those strategic insights about these are what our customers or this is what our suppliers saying they value. This is why they value it. And this is the implications. And this is what we should do. And as I say, leadership wants recommendations with the options. They don't want you to make the decision for them. But if you want to do this at scale, and fully automate it. Imagine feeding that kind of 
decision-making power into the AI engine, which is running your operational systems. Mm -hmm. So it's making decisions about which marketing campaign I'm going to include Alex in, which offer would work really well based upon what we think Alex's mindset might be. Mm-hmm. So to operationalize it does take a little bit more thinking, but I don't think there's ultimately any choice for businesses in the future because we were already talking about the experience economy and how people value experiences. And yet when we did the B2B thing, we just thought all businesses are logical, right? We all have processes. We all have ways that we manage our business. I don't need to care about that stuff. It's all about price, availability, terms and conditions. But businesses are made up of people. And as you know, those people all have their own drivers. They all have their own, their own things that they're interested in. Now, what makes it slightly more complex is, of course, when you talk about a corporate entity, it has multiple personalities. Yep. So the purchasing department has a series of drivers. The marketing department has a series of drivers. But businesses should be able to think about that and think about how are we satisfying those at a mechanistic level. And I talk about the difference between what I want and what I need. And what I need is rational, okay? Mm -hmm. I'm hungry, therefore I need food. Um, What I want is a nice big juicy burger that I can get from my local pub. And I know it's not particularly good for me, but it will satisfy an emotional behavioral construct. Well, businesses have the same things. They have what they need, which are often written in the terms of conditions and the contractual um, documentation. And then they have what they want which is about their culture, how they perceive themselves, how they want the market to perceive them, mm-hmm. how people feel about that. So how do employees feel about being part of an organization? And we need to reflect that because many more businesses now are beginning to think very hard about their culture, their values, about how they express themselves in a the world, because that's what we as stakeholders, as consumers, investors, we're asking of businesses now we're saying it's not just about make your shareholders rich mm-hmm. although that is a completely acceptable return I mean, it's fundamentally it's what capitalism is about right you yeah. give us capital we give you a return but we now demand you do more you so show a social conscience you have you treat your employees well you treat your suppliers well you treat me well that we're all in this together and that was that interconnectedness yeah, that's become a lot more apparent over the last year than perhaps before. Before we were very transactional. We were very, you know, these are the T's and C's. This is the price. You know, we, we just make it easy. Okay, now people do want ease. I don't um, say that's not the case, but we just come to accept that now because that can be delivered in these new platforms. You know, ease and um, being able to do that consistently. Well, everybody should be able to offer that at this point. That's why I say there's no excuse now about yeah. using coronavirus not to do it. But we want so much more. And so do our suppliers and so do our channel partners. And we also have to express that in ways that resonate with those feelings, those wants within um, our ecosystem. And it's very extended. It's not just I'm in my little bubble and nobody else matters. You know, the pandemic, by definition, was global. It disrupted everything. Channels, suppliers, our employees, every piece of our value chain was disrupted in some way. Mm-hmm. And I think what's what's also interesting, um, we'll refer to a piece of McKinsey research I saw that they released in December of um, of last year. I think they surveyed just over 3,600 buyers in, in the world of B2B. And um, it was around the risk tolerances of what I'm prepared to spend online in either an end-to-end virtual environment or quasi-virtual environment. And 15% of those respondents said they'd be happy to spend north of a million dollars on a product or service. 
in, in without ever actually having to physically meet someone, which is, I think, you know, if, if that's now, you know, back to your, the, 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 the people, the people bit and the, the, the wider piece and that, and that, uh, in that kind of context, I think we're in, there's some interesting, interesting times ahead for organizations where they are probably, their product or service is now further down the value the value chain, if you will, of what is perceived to be risk. And this is Amazon, right? In terms of you can now go online and spend, you know, whatever you want without even necessarily thinking twice about it. Whereas pre the pre-world Amazon, get in the car, go to the shop, have a look around. Am I getting the best price now? We're like, you know, anything, 100 quid on Amazon, don't even think think about it. A thousand quid on Amazon? Yeah, might need to think a little bit, you know, a little bit more. But it, it's fascinating what what organizations are going to have to do in terms of that that end-to-end journey and your point around um around uh social you know what as a as researcher his name surname is adamson from from gartner we're saying just because in-person um ends doesn't doesn't mean that online um can stop so that when we come out of this environment even when we're back into physical face-to-face meetings that online aspect of maintaining the touch point with your employees, customers, suppliers, future sub, you know future employees is going to be absolutely critical, and there is an expectation in the modern age that it should work, it should be seamless, and there is the there is debate about personalization at scale. Facebook, Netflix, Spotify can do personalization at scale. B two B can't. However, to your earlier point, we can do relevance at scale, i.e. you are CTO, you're a CMO in this industry and backed up with everything that you know, you, you, your research and what you do, the data and the insight as to why does somebody like that do something based on what we can see them doing can start to make your marketing campaigns more effective. And I'm now hearing, again, this conversation is go where your customers are going to be, not where they are. Were. And that's what we did pre-COVID, right? We we debased mm. it on where they were. Now you need to be where they're going to be without necessarily them realizing that they're going to be there at that moment in time. So what's your kind of you know, if we're going to look at the, the, the future, where where do you where do you see this this going in five years, let's say five years time, ten years, I think it's too far out in terms of the crazy <laughs> world that we're in, but I think I feel five years kind of feels feels right. 2020 still transitions. So as we move into 2021 and beyond, where, where do you believe this is all going to go? Um, either from a B2C, but also the B2B lens as well. Well, I think, um, so th- there, there are a couple of different stories to be told here. Yeah. And so let's take the one I think is most relevant to the most organizations in the world. And those are the small to medium enterprises, but mm-hmm. particularly around the medium size. I think that you're right, hyper-personalization to the point of one for many of these organizations is very difficult to do. Um, If you're in a B2B2C or a B2C or D2C kind of model, if you want to understand consumers and employees at that one-to-one level, um, it is difficult. Nonetheless, what you can do is draw out, say, some of those motivations you can draw out of some of those things. But what I suspect will happen is those platform providers, so the people who do provide these capabilities, Mm -hmm. they're going to do what the big enterprises are going to do, which is to really invest in understanding their ecosystem and what drives it from a motivational point of view. And they will come up with a Pareto model they build into their operational platform. Mm 
-hmm. which is it's 80% accurate. It will never be 20% accurate because human beings are complex and messy and very situational. And to give you an example, what I mean by that, your emotional state is fluid. It changes on a you know, moment to moment, day to day basis. Just because I'm angry today doesn't mean I'm going to be angry tomorrow or vice yeah. versa. So that's not the same as our strategic segment. You know, I, I might fit a marketing profile um, and they base a number of judgments on me. And that's segmentation. That's the basis of segmentation. So our behavioral segments are much more fluid than our strategic segments. So people who do things like ERP, CRM systems, dealing through multi-channel marketing will use those Pareto models to say, well, which version of Alex do I think I'm talking to at the moment? Let's include them in a campaign, mm -hmm. which has been designed specifically to address some of those wants, whether they're reduce the amount of pain I'm in or make me feel more secure or make me feel happier. Um, and after all, at the moment in uncertainty, that's what a lot of people are actually asking for is, I wanna feel a bit more certain. Can you give me some confidence that mm -hmm. I can move on? So that will express itself then as models that the small to medium-sized businesses will be able to buy in through their platform provider. And this is where I, I think, I, I'm looking forward to what I believe will be a, a bit of a revolution in the high street retail, because I think we're gonna see more artisanal retailers. So people are gonna recognize, I can't out Amazon, Amazon. You know, it's just, just <laughs> not gonna happen, okay? They're, they're really efficient, they're really effective, they're really good at doing what they do. Um, so think of those like one of those big platforms. But what if I could add or address some of those wants which don't really work for Amazon right now? Because yeah. a lot of their recommendations are based upon product similarities. You know, people who yeah. buy product A typically want to buy product B, so I recommend product B. Mm -hmm. But what the smaller retailers will be able to do is to take some of those insights from the platforms and convert that into their customer base and say, okay, I think right now that Peter might be feeling quite receptive about us as an organization, he's had a pretty good journey. We haven't disappointed him. Um, he might be open to an upsell or a cross-sell mm -hmm. based upon what we think Peter like um, people like Peter value. So they will be able to take some of those off-the-shelf capabilities to say, which are not 100% accurate, mm -hmm. but there'll be models that say these are behavioral drivers for financial services, these are yeah. behavioral drivers for you know um of high value retail so what i mean what, what i mean by that is if you're going to do drive by selling this kind of stuff doesn't really matter if you only want to make the one sale and you're done yeah um, then understanding what drives people to make repeat purchases isn't your gig right and i i get that <laughs> but if customer lifetime value is important to you that value bit has to work both ways yeah as an organization have to be able to optimize about what we value which is usually a return on capital of some form. Mm -hmm. um, but we also have to give our suppliers and our customers things that they value, and that's the exchange. You know? So you're getting something at a price um, that you are prepared to accept, and we're getting something in return for that. So I think what we will see within five years, actually, I believe it'll be a lot less, okay. is we'll start to see platforms coming out with these kind of behavioral models in there, yeah. which are then tuned to specific industries that say, not only do you run the transaction of, let's say, take a sale from start to finish and you go through the journey, but we know that there will be inflection points in that where you can make a difference. So sometimes called moments that matter, mm -hmm. but often we don't really understand why they matter. That's yeah. what I do. But um, what we can do is then say that for any given customer, even if you haven't spoken to them in person for a while, mm -hmm. we measure what has been happening with that customer from our point of view and use that to make a good estimate of where we think their head might be. 
And I, I think that will come out quite quickly, say that will be some large enterprises will probably do that within behind their own firewall to yep. drive their own operations. Mm -hmm. But the platform vendors will bundle it up in terms of their version, perhaps of an online marketplace, which they then leverage through the channels. But the final bit that comes out of that is get the feedback because all these models constantly need to be addressed because I don't think we're done with disruption. I think we've got more bumps in the road coming along. We have to deal with those. Yeah. So you always need to be able to suck some of that feedback back. But when you get it right, imagine a world where your small um, retailer has the ability to make the kind of behavioral decisions that an Amazon or a Google makes in the yeah. way that it messages to you based upon being able to get an extra little bit of functionality out of their platform for marketing or customer relationship or supplier relationship management. Um, I can see that happening. I mean, I think, and I say, I think there's real demand for it to happen sooner than five years, particularly because I say, going back to the beginning, my optimism, you know, I think if we look around, there was a lot of money stuffed under the mattress last year that we hope is going to come into the economy in the next year. Um, people are getting back into now I'm prepared to spend. You know, we were doing a lot of hedging. I was uncertain. So I'm not going to make a big financial bet until I figure out what's going on. And businesses were doing the same thing. I'm yeah. not going to make a big investment until I've got a chance to figure out what might be happening because I don't want to make the wrong bet. Um, so in order to, to take advantage of that quickly, and this is one way to get a competitive advantage, because after all, um, and Alex, I know you talk about this a lot, you know, your insight into your relationships with your customers and your suppliers it cannot be reverse engineered no. you, you can't copy your relationship <laughs> so it's one of the uniques that you have you just need to find ways of leveraging it and i i i agree with you in terms of everything you're saying it looks it you know ties in with what forrester is saying back to that point around guided selling i know people think i'm setting up a stuck record on this but it truly is where i believe you know b2b needs to go and organizations that recognize this and start to do this. And I think it'll be fascinating to, you know, have thought about, you know, having a platform where this, this kind of 80% of it's inbuilt and they do that final kind of 20, um, 20%. Peter, as always, this has been um, fascinating. You and I could talk for hours uh, on this. Where can, um, where can people find you if they want to learn more about how you might be able to support them and help them on this, uh, this journey? Well, I always say that people can, um, there are a number of ways of getting me to me. The first one is try out my website. So that's exemplify, xmplify.co.uk, or find me on LinkedIn. And I always respond to all emails. I always respond to people who message me. Um, yeah, I, I'm in a fortunate position. I, I do work that I really enjoy and that interests me, and I love learning and sharing with other people. So find me on my website, look for exemplify, um, or find me on LinkedIn. Peter Dockland. Peter uh, Dorrington. I, I will put the links to um, to that within the um, uh, within this podcast and, and the blog. But Peter, thank you so much for your time and insight today, and to everybody else listening in the ether, I um, really appreciate your um, uh, your support and uh, following me on my podcasting journey. Well over three and a half thousand downloads now, which is pretty pretty amazing. So uh, thank you. If you want to be on this, you know what to do. Uh, message me, find me, or you want to recommend anybody to be on this, but. Uh, for the moment, uh, that's enough for today, and I will see you all again uh, next week. Peter, thank you. Thank you, Alex. Bye-bye.